This is IAQ Radio, Indoor Air Quality Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry, with your hosts, Radio Joe Hughes and the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. And now, Radio Joe Hughes. Good day, wherever you're listening from, and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio, for Friday, October 1st, 2010. This week, episode 181 comes to you from Studio C in beautiful McKees Rocks, Pennsylvania. My name is Joe Hughes, a Radio Joe. Here with me in the studio is the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. Always fun to work with you, Joe. Good day, Cliff. Today's segments include a great interview with Melinda Ballard and Dr. Richie Shoemaker. We'll do a quick uh, break for halftime, thank our sponsors, and of course we'll uh, go to the roundup. I think we'll have our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Wild, joining us. We've been updating and adding a blog at the IAQ Radio website every week. Check it out after the show or during or on the announcement at iaqradio.com. Before we get started, let's thank our sponsor. IAQ Radio Platinum sponsor is John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. That's J-O-N-D-O-N.com. Gold sponsors are Particles Plus Engineers and Manufacturers of feature-rich particle counters and air quality monitoring instrumentation. Learn more at ParticlesPlus.com. Count on us. Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions available at HealthyIndoors.com. And AEML Laboratories, free FedEx shipping, great pricing, same-day results, and never a rush fee. Learn more at AEMLinc.com. Association sponsors are the Indoor Air Quality Association, a multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Learn more at iaqa.org and RIA, the Restoration Industry Association, the granddaddy of the restoration industry. Network with leaders. Learn more at restorationindustry.org. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IAQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. All right. Most people know how to contact the show now. Just uh, go to the iaqradio.com website and follow the link that says go to the show. You can also download the shows after we're done. We have Melinda Ballard. Melinda is the president of Policyholders of America, a nonprofit organization providing free claims assistance to homeowners who have filed claims covered by their homeowners' policies. More than 2 million people have joined POA since its formation in 2000. Ms. Ballard founded the group after experiencing firsthand how insurance carriers can deal with their policyholders after disaster strikes. As many of our listeners know, uh, there was a jury award back in um, about 2000, I guess, for a $32 million jury verdict that got a lot of attention. The insurance company appealed that to the Third Court of Appeals and once to the Texas Supreme Court. The case was settled before the Texas Supreme Court heard the case, and we're very happy to have Melinda on the show today. Okay, we also have uh, from Pocomoke, Maryland, practicing there since 1980, 
is Richie Shoemaker, MD. Dr. Shoemaker's practice is dedicated to diagnosis and treatment as well as research. He's a family practitioner practicing in rural areas since 1977, graduation from the Duke Medical School. He became interested in illness caused by biologically produced toxins, biotoxins, in 1997, when there was an outbreak of a new type of human illness from a dinoflagellate called Fisteria, first in the Pocomoke River, a tributary of the Chesapeake Bay, and then in 25 other estuaries in the region. As the result of his experience, which led to the publication of the first papers on diagnosis and treatment of Fisteria's illness acquired in the wild, he has been researching biotoxin illness since then, including illness acquired following exposure to water-damaged buildings. All right, let's see if we've got uh, both of our guests on the line. Did we get them unmuted here? Hey, how are you, Joe? Great, Good thanks. Here. Welcome, thank you. And Dr. Shoemaker, do we have you? You sure do. You can't yeah. get rid of me that easy. <laughs> All right, excellent. Sorry, it took us a little while. We had two people on, but... Thank you both for joining us. Let's get started. Uh, I'm going to kind of go back and forth a little bit. Let's start with Melinda. We had a question, you know, you had a landmark lawsuit in the late 90s that led to uh, some significant changes that insurance companies have made to homeowners policies with respect to mold coverage over the last 8 to 10 years. Do you think your lawsuit had a lot of influ- your, your lawsuit had a lot of influence on these changes? Well, certainly it had some influence, unfortunately, but the trend to exclude had was happening long before my lawsuit. Uh, the insurance companies started hiring uh, management consulting firms like McKinsey to give them a map on how to increase profits. And what the, the overall uh, strategy that uh, McKinsey and others recommended and the insurance companies were quick to adopt was to put themselves uh, in a position where they hire their own experts who, they, who give them cover from a lot of bad faith. And I'm sure many of your listeners know what that means. They hire people that, uh, that are basically hired to not find problems, because if you don't find problems, you don't have to correct them. And, and so the experts hired by the industry would often blame the, the damage on things not covered by the policy or lowball, uh, use uh, inadequate scope of work so that it costs less for their paymaster, uh, meaning the insurance companies. So this trend was beginning in the mid-'90s, and we've seen uh, not just with mold but with many other things that carriers tend to embrace those things and wrap themselves in it and, and basically uh, act like chicken little, like the sky is falling, when in fact they're just trying to increase profits and by exclusion of, of claims. Well, you started the uh, Policyholders of America in 2000. By the way, I want to thank you. I, I don't know if you realize, but I, I do training courses around the country, and I get calls from time to time from people who I just – it might be out of nowhere, you know, from – uh, Des Moines, Iowa or something. I'm in Pennsylvania. I can't do a lot. Um, so, you know, I will uh, I will refer them oftentimes to your website. And so far, it's worked pretty well. Um, and from what I understand, you have 2 million people now registered as members. Is there a common thread between these people with respect to why they joined POA and what kind of problems uh, they're having? Sure. Most have joined POA solely because they've had a claim go bad. 
um, and they start doing some of their own research, and they find us, and we do offer uh, help at no charge. Um, so we're a free resource, which is not easy to find. And most of them have had some sort of water damage issue, whether or not it's turned to mold, uh, which insurance companies can turn a $2 water damage claim into a $50 million mold problem by delays. But the but most of our members have had, I'm going to say 55%, uh, if not maybe 60%, have had a water damage, and they have been getting the runaround. But water damage is one of the major claims filed on homeowner's insurance regardless. Okay, okay. And I've got a text. We had somebody lost the audio. They probably just got booted off. It sounds like everybody else can hear us. Let's go over to uh, Dr. Shoemaker. Uh, Cliff, do you want to handle this next one? Yeah, Dr. Shoemaker, can you summarize for the audience what the POA, Policyholders of America, paper that you participated in is all about? The paper that's called the Research Committee Report on Diagnosis and Treatment of Chronic Inflammatory Response Syndrome Caused by Exposure to the Interior Environment of Water-Damaged Buildings takes about as much time to to read the whole text as the title, (laughs) is, is the first compendium of a rigorous and transparent approach to the problem of human illness acquired following exposure to water-damaged buildings, written from the perspective of people who actually treat the illness. This paper is from is sponsored by a committee from Policyholders of America, and thank you, Ms. Ballard, for your courtesy and, and, and leadership in, in bringing this forward, but it provides one-stop shopping for anyone who wants to know, is there evidence that people get sick by breathing uh, bioaerosols in in the building, and what are on those bioaerosols, and what will they do to the human body, what are the immune responses that are involved, and what is the physiology that becomes abnormal once the immune disturbances get going, and then more importantly, what can you do about it? Add to that is a very careful uh, refutation uh, or expose, however you want to think about it, of the tactics that are used by defense interests in mold litigation. The real issue is that we have presented literally hundreds of annotated references so that there are very few questions about this whole large field that won't be touched on in some way by the material that is all peer-reviewed. It's all been published. It's, It's not anecdotal material. This is rigorous hard science to help people when they start in the field, oftentimes they don't know where to turn. Now, if they turn to uh, the Policyholders of America website, that's a good first step. There are lots of other uh, places that people can go as well. The uh, committees that are involved with looking at mold illness wanted to have a single source of reliable data to present to agencies, to present to physicians, to present to their next-door neighbor, uh, and as well as to present to judges. That's, it's really, I, I've enjoyed reading um, the the paper that was presented. I, I also want to, uh, if, if you don't mind, give a little uh, 
kudos to the uh, other authors on the paper. I guess you had Laura Mark, M.D., Scott McMahon, M.D., Jack Thrasher, Ph.D., and Carl Grimes also uh, on the committee that helped with the paper. This was a true group effort. The, the nice thing uh, is that everyone brought their own expertise from their own point of view. Um, any mistakes are left over, I think, are my fault. But uh, this, this, this was a collaborative back-and-forth effort. It was peer-reviewed uh, by uh, over, over 25 uh, members of the Action Committee for Health Effects on Mold Microbes and Indoor Contaminants. That's now uh, kind of morphed into a new committee, a global indoor health network. So we were talking about the group. You had the peer review done. Let's go into a little bit about um, how the paper's written. I find it fascinating that you did essentially a little summary of a particular issue, like uh, the agency opinions from the Institute of Medicine, uh, the Government Accountability Office, the World Health Organization, and the National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health. You wrote a little summary of of, I guess, your committee's views on those papers and then went in and actually took quotations from each of those papers to kind of back up your summary. Is that a somewhat accurate uh, description of what you've done here? It, 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 it really is. Uh, it, the focus is on human health and getting people better. There's a lot of false knowledge floating around about health effects uh, in, in this field. So what we've done is look at what truly makes sense, where the physiology is, but then specifically uh, chapter and verse. I have heard lots of versions about what the World Health Organization said, uh, and sometimes what what the quotes were were fairly biased. But when you actually go to the World Health Organization, for example, they say clearly exposure to microbial contaminants is clinically associated with respiratory symptoms, allergy, and immunological reactions. And we talked about immune problems as dominant in this illness uh, and work from our group for the last 13 years, but the issue is that now we have international recognition that the problem is not toxicological from a mycotoxin alone. This is a complex mixture uh, with inflammation involved, and each of the citations that follows starts with what did the reports actually say and what does the peer-reviewed literature have to say. Now, you you have, I don't know if it's hundreds or maybe even a thousand different uh, papers and, and research and et cetera quoted in here. I'm just curious if, if there were a couple that kind of stand out as the most important uh, landmark papers that have come out that um, you really relied on the most for developing this report. The, the trouble of trying to answer that uh, is saying, you know, which of your children do you like better? Um, <laughs> we, have, we have the World Health Organization and GAO show where, where we are with uh, this day and age in science. Uh, most of the references are current and that they're only a year or two old or sometimes three or four uh, because this, this field is changing so rapidly. There's so much research going on, so many different things. Uh, I thought the paper we had in, in 2005 was great in that it showed how can we prove causation of illness looking at parameters when you take people who are sick, you fix them, you stop their medications and show the ubiquitous fungi of the world don't make them sick, and then you put them in a building and you watch them in three days and you see day by day what goes wrong with them. 
that shows us causation. But you know, that was five years ago. The paper that we had in April, uh, excuse me, of August of this year, looked at 850 people and all the inflammatory uh, problems that, that, that go wrong and, and, and sequential effects of treatment. That was important. But you know, we're now looking at T regulatory cells and their crucial role in, 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 in how there is defective antigen presentation and why people stay sick. They don't get better with removal. Those papers are newer, and they're going to be more important than the ones from two years ago. But in, in, in all honesty, the agency opinions, World Health Organization and GAO, I think are more important than, than the latest, greatest science from this group or the other. Okay. Let's go back to uh, Melinda. And I'm curious, Melinda, how did, you know, we're talking about this POA position statement. It's got a lengthy title. We'll go through it again in a moment. But I'm curious how it came came about. How did um, you and Dr. Shoemaker get together and start working on this? Why was it a, um, a big effort like this that uh, POA put together? Well, first of all, anybody that is an advocate for the victims here knows who Dr. Shoemaker is. Um, so that is, I've known him and known of him for quite some time. Um, and it was more of a collaborative effort amongst the advocacy groups uh, that we encouraged this paper because we were all aware of all the research he had done and how important it was. Uh, we needed to give and still do need to give people that are suffering from the health problems uh, from caused by water damage buildings to know that there is relief out there and to give doctors, their treating physicians, kind of a roadmap for some things that have worked. And his paper and much of his research has been, um, has enabled there to be hope amongst this group. So to get better, hope to get better. And, um, and it was very important for all sorts of reasons to help people, uh, their symptoms be relieved that we get this knowledge base out there. And uh, Dr. Shoemaker and the other co-authors were happy to spend their own time and own effort and own energy and own money uh, to make that happen. Melinda, did the policyholders of America pay the folks who put this document together? No, we had we did not pay a dime for it, and uh, and we're not asked to. They had again contributed their own time to see it through. Where can our audience who would be interested in getting this document? Where can they get it? How can they get it? What's the cost for getting it? Uh, there is no cost for the document. It is on Policyholders of America's website. And they can email uh, info, that would be short for information, but info at policyholdersofamerica.org and just put in the subject line paper, uh, and I'll send it to them. Perfect. Thank you. Okay. And I think we had talked about maybe making that available through us, but we'll, we'll go through that later and uh, take, it, take it as we go along. Okay. All right. Let's go back to Dr. Shoemaker. Um, I've got... There's so much information in this report. It's kind of tough for me to to figure out where to start. And I and we talked a little bit about the agency opinion and, and how important those were: the Institute of Medicine, the World Health Organization, the GAO, etc. 
One of the questions I asked you before the show, I want to make sure our, our listeners know, is you had some information from NIOSH, the National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health, in this document that I wasn't aware existed. Um, how did you locate that, and can you tell our listeners where to find that? Uh, I would suggest they look at the NIOSH website. Uh, I think uh, some of the uh, collaborative effort to put that, that bit together comes from NIOSH documents. Okay. Um, and, and, you know, it's, it's, it's worth looking at. NIOSH has, has, I think, two different arms. One is a research arm, and, and the other is an investigation arm. Um, and it is, it's as helpful as, as the government has been lately. Uh, they don't have a real good track record for being aggressive in sampling and, and, and in case detection. Uh, and, and, and NIOSH is, is, is hopefully going to get up to speed on where agencies need to be now. Uh, now is, is not the time to say, well, maybe it's time we study the illness in rats. Uh, actually, we, we don't need to study the illness in rats because we have uh, peer-reviewed data on thousands of, of humans. And what we need from agencies is to expand the little bit they've done. Uh, and I agree with you, it was hard to find a lot from, from NIOSH that's, that's kind of uh, informative and, and, and useful in 2010. Uh, but the NIOSH website is a good place to start. Now, the whole paper is is very clear, at least, and maybe I'm wrong, but correct me if I am, that there's you're not implicating any one contaminant, let's for the lack of a better word, within water damaged buildings as the the one, you know, the the gold silver bullet that's actually causing these health issues. Can you talk to us a little bit more about how you came to the point where it's, you know, water damaged buildings in general and not mycotoxins or not mold spores or whatever? The evolution of understanding of human illness causation is is one that's reflected in this concept of specific causation. Uh, when Melinda was in her battles down in, in Dripping Springs, there was some discussion that mycotoxins were were the end-all and be-all, and, and in people were being asked to, to show specific mycotoxins that made people sick. I think some of that was an insurance gambit because the testing was not available to show that uh, in people and certainly was not readily available in a reliable fashion to look in, uh, in, in field samples. But specifically, as we learned about what particles make people sick, it was not large spores, the 3D micron-sized structures. It was fragments of spores that were shown to cause trouble. And the trouble was shown by people like Dr. Rand in Nova Scotia was inflammatory in origin. And we use names with funny uh, spellings like cytokines to talk about inflammation producers. And as one investigation showed cytokines, there was something else they didn't show. So the next paper showed now that human complement was involved. And then we found that there was lack of regulation of inflammation so that many elements of inflammation were, were, were being activated. And then we started looking at what could do this activation. We, we had that, and suddenly as research further uh, helped us understand mechanisms, we knew that beta-glucans caused trouble, and sure enough, there were Dectin-1 and Dectin-2 receptors that, that were involved. And then we found compounds with special little sugar structures or moieties on them were involved in mannose receptors would set off signals that turn on inflammation. And then we found that 
yes, you could have uh, fungi and actinomycetes together and get these synergistic effects. And as the science progressed by 2006, it was clear that the innate immune responses were being activated by multiple different initiating events, but the response itself is kind of like the final common pathway. You see the final inflammation that could be set off by many different sources and many interacting sources. So this idea of, you know, pick one uh, bullet from the gun of, of, of the fellow on the firing squad, that's who, who murdered the, or killed the, the, the victim, we can't do that because so many different sources of inflammation are present and so many different sources of inflammation turn themselves on repeatedly and exponentially so that just a few molecules of, say, beta-glucan mixed with a few molecules of mycotoxin mixed with a few molecules of beta of endotoxin can set off this gigantic response. That's why things like dose response doesn't really work here either. We're looking at host response, host immune response to initiating events. And the initiating events are many, and small numbers can do an awful lot. Specific causation fails, and fortunately the World Health Organization and GAO both emphasize that. But our paper brings forward a number of different mechanisms by which we get to the final result of a sick person. Yeah, it's it's fascinating. Uh, there's some really great reading here for those of you that don't have a copy. And this just came out July 27, 2010. And before we go to halftime, I, I want to ask Melinda, Does did the publication of this paper uh, make you rethink a little bit of, uh, of you know, what caused the problems you and others that you work with are having? And do you think you'll change the focus of policyholders of America a little bit from, you know, based on the results from this study? Yes, absolutely. I mean, we've had to because I think that if if you don't, you are going to become a dinosaur. Um, and we certainly don't want to be that. So anybody that is communicating with the public has got to factor in this hard number research. I mean, there's uh, we can't question it, given how it, it was done, the methodology, and uh, and so we are going to rethink how we advise people in terms of what to do. Uh, it, it's a cocktail, as Dr. Shoemaker points out, that causes the, the problems. Um, and you can't treat one element of many. And, and, and focus on, for example, the mycotoxins only. And it does, it certainly does um, call into question some things that we've done in the past, and we are changing those as we go forward, uh, just like it would remediation, the way you remediate. Okay. That's great. Uh, I, I appreciate your frankness on that, and uh, I would like both of you to hang on for just a minute because we've got to take a short halftime break and thank our sponsors. IAQ Radio Platinum Sponsor is John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. That's J-O-N-D-O-N.com. 
gold sponsors are Particles Plus Engineers and Manufacturers of feature-rich particle counters and air quality monitoring instrumentation. Learn more at ParticlesPlus.com. Count on us. Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions available at HealthyIndoors.com. And AEML Laboratories, free FedEx shipping, great pricing, same-day results, and never a rush fee. Learn more at AEMLinc.com. Association sponsors are the Indoor Air Quality Association, a multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Learn more at iaqa.org and RIA, the Restoration Industry Association, the granddaddy of the restoration industry. Network with leaders. Learn more at restorationindustry.org. Okay, let's get right back to our interview. I want to let's check in with Dr. Weil here, our technical director. Hello, Dr. Dieter. How are you, sir? Do we have you in the, on the show? Very good, good, uh, good day to everybody. And um, I have a couple of comments right now and a, and a bunch of questions, and I don't even think we have all time for that. <laughs> I like uh, Miss Ballard's uh, uh, work with insurance companies. I, uh, it, it kind of makes you sick, you know. I bought a car with a hundred thousand mile uh, um, warranty insurance on it, you know, a, a warranty on it. Yeah, only one thing wrong with the insurance. <laughs> Anything that breaks is not covered. So uh, I love that. But and, they'll, they'll uh, pay a claim as long as the day it's filed doesn't end with a Y. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, I, I, I think this is really an issue that needs you know to be addressed. There's no question about it. Yeah, we all we all have quote uh, insurance and. Yeah, God forbid that you need it, uh, and then all of a sudden there are big question marks. Doesn't matter. But I am, uh, I, uh, Dr. Schumacher's stuff, I mean, I love it in, in, in a way, even though he says we really can't establish a dose-response relationship over here. But we see the people, there are hundreds, there are thousands of people who are reacting. And I have the, I worked on a bunch of indoor air quality um uh, issues where I went in and I took air samples and uh, yeah, there are 10,000 more spores on the outside than on the inside. I couldn't find any VOCs uh, uh, even in, uh, in the part per million range, not part per trillion. And I sometimes wonder whether it's perhaps something else. I just was at the supermarket yesterday and I came home with yeah, 20 things in plastic. I mean, everything is in plastic. My lunch meat, my milk, my the, 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 the Clorox I bought, and um, uh, in plastic bags, and uh, the radishes I bought, and the uh, peaches I bought. And uh, there are a ton of chemicals coming from over there. And the, the other thing that bothers me is, uh, I'm 72 years old, 50 years ago, we didn't hear any about uh, anything about that. I grew up in Germany, and I didn't know anybody who had an allergy or, an, or had asthma. The, the, the words didn't exist in our language. 
did we screw up somewhere along the line in, in, in our new environment, and new, I mean, by the last uh, 50 or so years, where we all of a sudden are surrounded by, yeah, go in your car. I mean, everything is plastic in there. It's not a, there's not a piece of wood in there. And with the exception of the glass, that's it. So I, I ask myself that question. Is it maybe something else? that will have that response. Okay. And a I couple, shut up over here. I don't want to I have a couple, couple responses that, okay. that I, I think you're right on the button, is that the process of diagnosis is one that involves differential diagnosis. What, right. could, what could this be? Uh, there was a paper published in 2005 called Body Burden, the Pollution in Newborns. It was written by the Environmental Working Group Jane Houlihan was, was the lead author, and they talked about uh, 75,000 chemicals that are being used in commerce, and I think over 3,000 back then they identified as being used in over a million pounds. I mean, this is, this is a huge potential source of trouble. And I think so. There's over 1,000 compounds found in, in the umbilical cord blood of babies. So, you know, what, what are we doing environmentally? But there's another issue if we look away from chemicals and start looking at, 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 in a way, what I call unnatural evolution. It was not true before 1970 that you found very many fungi with inside buildings that had an enzyme called acetyl-O-transferase on it. And okay. this acetyl group could be moved could be moved from one part of the mycotoxin, for example, to another, one part of the beta-glucan to another, such that immune detection mechanisms, we call them phycolins, and they turn on complement, now recognize these substances as setting off inflammatory responses that they didn't before. The fungal organisms changed. They're not the same. Chin Yang has, is, is on record documenting we used to find uh, almost universal resistance correction susceptibility of fungi to bleach, not anymore. Quaternary ammonium compounds, not anymore. Copper, for goodness sake, a type 1 biocide, we now know uh, doesn't kill fungi and some other bacteria like it used to. So there is a role for what our environment is doing to creatures that live in it, and if we change them, they may bite us, and I think that's exactly what's happening. Well, but there's another somewhat of a dynamic going on in terms of buildings, though, and that is that America has adopted a, more of a Walmart mentality, and that is uh, better, faster, cheaper, um, without too much worry about quality control. And the, the building industry is, has gotten shoddier and shoddier, I'm sorry to say, and the, the labor pool from which they draw many of which are, don't even speak English, uh, how can you, uh, you know, possibly adhere to what your foreman says to do if you don't understand English? And the building materials that are being used are substandard. So all that combined has produced at least buildings that are less well-built than they used to be. Right. Some of the simple maintenance issues get overlooked at this time to build a building as well. For example, if you have a fake stucco system that's dependent on caulking being installed properly and windows need to be flashed properly, well, that takes time and costs money, and those steps get, get skipped. 
not just not just Walmart, but 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 negligence, uh, all in the favor of the bottom line, contributes to this idea when someone says, "Well, I moved into a new home, and and I'm sure it's fine. It's brand new," and I'm thinking that's the last place I want to be. Right. Let me uh, ask a follow up for Doctor Shoemaker. Um, I didn't notice a great deal in the paper, and I, it may have been just that I didn't get to it, but I didn't notice much discussion or um, many literature quotes about the effects that water damage has on the chemicals within some of these building materials. Is that in there and I missed it, or is it something that we still need to do more work on? You're, you're right. It, it, it's not there. You're also right that the paper, even as we cut it down as much as we could, is still over 160 pages long. And in terms of is this an encyclopedia looking at all aspects, no, it really isn't. But your point is extremely well taken, is that we all say without moisture there's no microbial growth. One is exactly correct. Look at what materials we're using that when moistened will now provide food readily. Uh, it, it's a fascinating ecological environment that being indoors about 70 degrees with about the same humidity year-round. And there's many factors that look at what contribute to the ecology. The fascinating issue is that the ecology is the same whether you're in Norway, Fairbanks, Alaska, or Miami Beach. Cliff, do you want to take this next one right here? Yeah, I think so. Um, Did the authors go out of their way to try and include papers that did not reflect their opinions and, and findings with respect to health effects caused by living or working in water-damaged buildings? Yeah, I think that's a, that's a very important uh, question. We wanted to be rigorous and transparent, but we also wanted to show as much as we could absence of bias. Now, if, if you have someone annotating a paper, I guess there is that, that some bias built in, but in the sections that we call naysayers, maybe that shows some bias. But there are multiple references to papers uh, written by people that don't agree about complex inflammatory events. But there aren't that many out there, Cliff, to, to quote. I'm looking at people that deny illness and say no one could be made sick with neurologic problems and cognitive problems. What data do they have? What papers are published? What human research is there that actually has been done? Now, consensus statements is probably the the least valuable of, of, of the people's uh, comments that are published, where is the prospective studies showing people exposed to water-damaged buildings don't get inflammatory events, don't get the problems with cognition and musculoskeletal events and unusual uh, joint problems and, and GI problems in addition to, to respiratory. Where is that data? There isn't any. So if you say, were we open to including the other side as much as possible, we did. I think there's, there's 30 or 40 references there. But having said that, there's not much we could find to put in because it's not done. The reason it's not done is it, it's not right. You know, we, we got a little uh, flack, I guess, last week, you would say, Cliff, for not presenting enough on the other side. And, and quite frankly, that's been part of the problem. I haven't been able to find people who are willing to come on and discuss uh, the other side. And so I, I was fascinated by the section in your paper that, you know, went into what other, what studies did not necessarily back up what you're saying here. And, and I'm going through those now and I'm trying to figure out, okay, who can I get on the show? So if you have any suggestions 
for someone that we can bring on that will discuss the other side of the issue, I'd love to hear them. Yeah. What was the goal of the paper? I mean, is it to advance the science? Is it to show uh, that more science is available and people realize? Is it to help uh, sway the legal landscape or help people suffering from water damage-related illness or all the above? I think there were two main goals, and and, and, and Melinda probably has uh, a need to answer this question as well from her point of view. For me, it was a is establishment of a reference resource. Here is something that people can look at quickly, and if they want to look more, they can. The citation is there. Secondly, it's designed to be a tool for education. It's designed to educate patients and physicians and and, and, and judges and, and agency members and, and people in the, in the government. But it basically says, what is the state of the art as we know it? And when I say we know it, it's written from the point of view of someone who treats this illness and deals with its nuances every single day. And you can't get that from a Ph.D., no disrespect to Ph.D.s, who never treat patients. And you can't get it from an M.D. that doesn't treat the illness. So looking at those physicians who treat the illness, uh, we all thought that it was the best way to put some hands on, you know, some good old hard, you know, human calluses uh, on a problem and see what it feels like and looks like. Okay. Let's, Melinda, if you don't mind, would you give us your perspective? Well, I, I would agree with, with Dr. Shoemaker 100%. I mean, as I said, there were people out there that, and, and are still out there that need uh, hope that they that their symptoms can be subsided, that there are treatments available, that uh, why the whys would be answered. How did this happen to me? And it's very important to educate those people. So, from my perspective, and from the perspective of the other advocacy groups involved, we all wanted a a, a reference guide, and and we got it. But I do want to speak really quickly to, to your other point about the other side being represented in, in this uh, conversation. And I want to just tell a very quick story as to what happened to me. Um, after my case, um, I wanted to change my insurance company, obviously, and um, I decided that I was going to buy a, a $5 million umbrella policy. And, um, and also a, a, a couple of million dollars worth of insurance, uh, life insurance. So on that form that you, and I uh, went and uh, asked a number of different carriers and had to fill out a bunch of forms. When you buy, a, let's say, even a million dollar uh, life insurance policy, you have to uh, fill out a form that says if you, uh, that discloses any kind of risk that you may take if you've been exposed to something that could cause health problems, so on and so forth. So, of course, I put down that I had been exposed to uh, toxigenic mold and uh, because that, otherwise I'd be in trouble not, not to have done that. Do you know that within the insurance industry, life insurance companies that are, let's say, uh, you know, sneezy, dumpy, grumpy uh, insurance company has a number of different, they sell property insurance, they sell life insurance, they sell umbrella insurance. Within that specific organization, the life insurance companies will absolutely not provide life insurance coverage to those that have been, at least when I applied, to those that have been exposed to toxigenic mold 
because they wrote that your that the risk of you developing serious health problems and may result that may result in death are too great for our underwriter. Hmm. But on so, the other hand, we don't cover uh, mold claims. I guess is that. But on the other hand, the property and casualty side of that same insurance company is saying mold causes no health problems. Yeah, but I think I would go back to what Dr. Weil always says, really, that those makes the poison. And, you know, you certainly had exposure and it might have been, uh, you know, excessive exposure. It depends how long and so on and so forth, you know, that, that you had it. And I, and I think that maybe you were too close to the issue. Um, and maybe we're too honest in doing it. I think you think about it because I've applied for life insurance and just did recently, and um, I don't know that I, I, I certainly didn't, I, I wasn't being. Um, Choose your words carefully. Yeah, there, huh? <laughs> I, I wasn't being deceptive with the insurance company, uh, you know, when, when I. You know the, the the subject of toxic mold. Uh, well, and you've been in the water up. damage business for how many years yeah. now? Oh, you yeah. know, forty years. Yeah, so absolutely. Uh, I think I can see that was a, that's a double edged sword there. Right, uh, Cliff. I know you had a question you wanted to ask Melinda. Uh, I, I, I did because I think it's really I think it's really important for the listeners. You know, Melinda. Uh, a lot of disaster restoration companies uh, really follow the weather very, very closely. And we would do something called storm chasing and, you know, kind of going into areas which have been water damaged or which are going to get water damaged. And on your website, uh, you have a different definition for what you call a hurricane chaser. If you could tell the audience a little bit more about this program and the value of the program. Well, it, it was born out of Katrina, where people were having a lot of problems getting coverage for hurricane damage uh, done to their homes. And so, and and the you know the insurance companies like to rely on ah that's that was caused by rising floodwaters, which are not covered under the normal homeowner's policy. And so, if if we were if if we knew people were staying. We pay them uh, if they can safely, and that is underscored safely, uh, go out and document damage as it's being done in the, during the storm, like, for example, in the eye of the storm when everything is calm or immediately following the storm before everyone else gets a chance to come in and, and doctor up the, the results, if you will, and blame it on things uh, that you can no longer prove because the floodwaters have receded. Uh, and the but we pay our members to uh, those that have opted to stay during a hurricane to document when it's safe to do so the various damage that's done in particular areas. We've paid about twenty thousand dollars thus far, um, mostly with Hurricane Ike and a couple of other storms, um, for people who send in photographs that are useful to our other members. And so it's very important from a from. Uh, who had the shrimp salad, who had the chicken salad standpoint, because insurers love to blame all damage done on what is not covered by the policy. You know, that's I, I agree with Cliff. I think that's very important for – we have a large disaster restoration audience, people who go out and do water damage restoration. I didn't know that information, that, that you collected that information and that you had – documentation and that it was is it available to the public or um, you know let's say I've got a person out that's helping someone with disaster restoration they're having trouble getting 
coverage, um, would they send them to your website? Uh, yes, absolutely, and 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 you do not have to be a POA member to obtain that information at all. It's done for free. Um, it's just something that really does help uh, put a answer on a question in terms of what damage was done where. And there are weather services that uh, you know can do things from afar, but not on the ground. Okay. And and it's very helpful to have photographs on the ground at during a during the eye or immediately following the storm that tell a better picture than somebody just assume, making assumptions. You know, Melinda, I know that this is unrelated, but do you does your organization ever get contacted by policyholders that have had smoke damage from forest fires or fire damage or other types of perils? Oh, absolutely. I, about 10% of our members are uh, have had fires, and of that, believe it or not, uh, 50%, which are about 5% of the total, um, are have had mold problems as a result of the water used to put out a fire. So it's, uh, but we do have many other types of claims, but water damage is clearly the, the top, as it would be with insurance companies. It's the, what causes the most um, damage and what most claims are, revolve around. Absolutely. All right. Well, let's, let's go to our roundup here. We've got about seven minutes left. We're going to go once around the horn and make sure everybody gets a final question and that we also give uh, both of you an opportunity to add anything that we may have missed. Let's go to uh, Dr. Wow first. Uh, Dieter, do you have anything you'd like to add or any questions you'd like to ask? Well, yeah, I think we made a couple of very important points. Uh, Dr. Shoemaker uh, uh, certainly does agree with this. Uh, that if you get exposed to uh, 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 one thing, that is that is one thing. If you get exposed to ten different ones or twenty different ones, that is in a completely different ballgame. And I understand that, and I'm the first one to admit that. I I studied endotoxins years ago, and we used endotoxins to look at the bisonosis, that is the lung disease, which cotton workers do get. And we measured um, endotoxins in cotton dust. And I'm the first one to admit there's a heck of a lot more in cotton dust than just endotoxins. You know, pesticides and heaven knows what. Interestingly, we found out that the fibers itself didn't do anything. That's cellulose. That's wood. Yeah, that's paper. That doesn't do anything. But I think that that, that to me... It's, it's one of the big questions. I mean, and if you have you know, an infinite amount of money and an infinite amount of time, you can study all the combinations of, you know, one, two, three, ten, a hundred different toxins. And uh, I, I also uh, agree with Ms. Ballard that we build these nice houses. They look great from the outside. And... Uh, inferior uh, building quality. We we just cut corners and put things in there which didn't even exist 50 years ago. And again, that is another source of exposure. So maybe the Indians uh, did it right. I guess well, they were not even exposed to radon when you have a tent that is open on all sides. They have good ventilation. And... Um, so that is uh, maybe I'm happy in my house that is 35 years old, 
and leaky. <laughs> All right. Well, Cliff. I mean those, but I mean those are questions. I would love to have the be well aware of that, that that can't be done overnight. Um, we may have. Uh, oh, they just had a comment from someone they didn't know about the cotton. It's the chems, not the fibers. Okay, I'm not sure. There's probably chemicals uh, as well, and you have mentioned that. So thank you, Dr. Wild. We appreciate you joining us. Uh, Cliff, do you have any final comments? I do. I have one for Melinda. Um, Melinda, what's the anti-concurrent clause, and why should a homeowner's policyholder be knowledgeable about it? Well, an anti-concurrent, the anti-concurrent clause was added by State Farm Oh, beginning a couple of years ago, and some states have allowed them to adopt it. And what it says is, is that if a if more than one cause contributes to the overall damage of a of a property, and one of the at least one of those causes is not covered by the homeowner's policy, then they owe nothing. And it's particularly uh, burdensome when you deal in with coastal properties and hurricanes because almost all hurricanes will uh, the the damage associated with a hurricane some of which will be covered by the uh, homeowner's policy some of which might be covered by a flood policy allows the uh, that company to not pay anything even if 99% of the damage to a home was done by something that was covered, and only 1% was done by a, a peril that is not covered, meaning, let's say, rising flood water, then that, comp- that insurance company would owe nothing. And so you uh, basically, they've already taken, they've, they've excluded all coverage with this anti-concurrent clause. Well, I've got a personal question. Knowing what you know about water damage, having the experience that you had in Dripping Springs, I understand it's beautiful where you live now, but why did you move to Charleston, South Carolina, considering it's had its share of issues in the past with hurricanes and damage? Well, I moved to Charleston and and made uh, every effort in the world to protect my home. Uh, that I bought here. So uh, there's things that you can do that um, that are, as you know, will minimize uh, damage done by that. I'm on the highest ground possible in downtown Charleston, um, and not even in the floodplain. Okay. So um, I, you know, the I'm not in in a spot that would cause me to be alarmed if a hurricane came through. Okay. Great. Dr. Shoemaker, before we go, I have a quick um, question on treatment. And then I'd like to ask both of you if there's anything we'd missed that you'd like to add. And I know uh, you have a couple papers you might want to mention as well. But with respect to treatment, how important is it for you to know? I mean, we've talked about the source of these, these illnesses. How important is it for you to know what the source of the chronic inflammatory illness is with respect to treating it? It's a, it's a wonderful question. We look at people after about six months as having a final common pathway. The inflammatory response only has so many different ways they can go, and that's what we have to treat to get people better. So that if we don't know what's wrong, we still are going to treat with what the patient has. Having said that, knowing what's wrong helps us plan for the future for avoidance. 
the concept of living in a bubble says that if you uh, had illness from an indoor environment, you're going to be careful about crawl spaces and basements, and you'll fix leaks and not have to expecto and that kind of thing. If the problem was related to a different biotoxin, say it's coming from a fish or coming from a tick, those, those all can lead right into it, the same pathway. There now is a virus out called XMRV that some people think has something to do with these chronic fatiguing illnesses as well. So the answer to your question is it helps you plan for the future, but it's not required to treat for the present. Okay, and then we have a real a text question. Maybe I can get it in real quick here. How are the inflammation effects monitored? The there were serial results of interventions. A perfect question. The scientific process says you do one intervention at a time. You have upfront, transparently, what's wrong on a piece of paper on a lab test from a reliable lab. You intervene. You expect to see changes based on peer-reviewed literature, and you document yes or no. And as you start looking at the list of jobs that you have to do to fix patients, say there's 12 things wrong, you start checking things off in order, one at a time, and you keep on going so there's a paper trail and a logic trail and a medical pathway trail that everyone who looks over your shoulder can see. Having the data gives you the ability to treat uh, aggressively. Having the data gives you the ability to defeat fear and guessing and assumption. Okay. I know we're running a little behind. I don't want to hold you up. So before we go, I want to ask uh, one thing for Dr. Shoemaker. You've got a, an abstract submission on exposure to water-damaged buildings causes a readily identifiable chronic inflammatory response syndrome that is successfully treated by sequential intervention protocol. Is that a, a discussion you'll be giving somewhere down the road? That paper was presented uh, on August 1st in Edinburgh at the International Mycology Congress and is being written up for submission, probably go to neurotoxicology and teratology. Basically, the uh, whole approach is to say, here are the things that 850 people had wrong with them, the control patients didn't. Here what was wrong after step one of treatment, after step two, after step three, and we get all the way down to, uh, I know we're running out of time, to the, the magic bullet at the end, it is, is restoring regulatory control of inflammation uh, with a hormone called VIP. Extremely exciting events going on in the basic science right now. Thank you. And is there anything you'd like to add before we get Melinda to ask or add any final comments? Uh, simply, I, I, everyone in this, this, this radio land knows uh, Melinda Bauer's reputation as, as being a leader and, and a fearless pioneer. And, you know, if, if we don't have a chance to say or to her face, thank you, at least uh, I can say that. I mean, there's a host of people in my office that say thank you for all her work uh, since uh, she's been, you know, leading so many people who otherwise would be lost in the wilderness. Well, thank you, and well, thank you for nice. us. <laughs> Melinda, can you? That was mighty nice, but i got to tell you, Dr. Shoemaker and everyone in this business that has contributed to helping people are, are all my heroes. And and I got to tell you, uh, Doctor Shoemaker, you're you're number one on that list. Well, uh, what, what a day! Hey, it's been a great day. I want to thank both of you, uh, Melinda Ballard and Doctor Richie Shoemaker, for joining us on this week's IAQ Radio. Before I go, I also want to make sure I thank my co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Slotnick. It's a good day. Another Jeff. good day. Of course, our most important group, our group of uh, loyal listeners. Thank you all. Please come back and join us next Friday at noon for the next broadcast of IAQ Radio. 
For IAQ Radio, I'm Spike Reel saying thanks for listening.